Father, we come to the time to open your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit should open our hearts, open our minds to receive from you the things that you have for us today. Lord, that uh, you would cause our walk to be stronger, our faith to, to be enriched, and our witness to be stronger in that sense that we would see even clearer with your eyes, your heart, your mind, and thoughts in the, the places that you lead our feet this week. We worship you, and again, we praise you and thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're actually going to move to Romans chapter 13. Somebody says, well, what happened to the rest of chapter 12? If you'll recall, we did that last year almost uh, before we went into the gifts because we were, were getting into some parts of that first. And so uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 13, verse, the first seven verses. But in the process of that, uh, before I read them, uh, uh, just that the overall picture of, of uh uh, Romans 12 and 13, really, is that we are deveal, dealing with man's relationships, the man's primary relationships, uh, his relationship with, with God, his relationship with each other, with, with, and actually his relationship as it stands with the government or with the state, if you will. And... Uh, uh, when we, we looked at the first two parts of this with God and with man, you know, it started Revelation, or Revelation, Romans chapter 12, uh, present yourself as a living sacrifice. And the whole idea of our relationship with God is to love the Lord our God with, what does it go? All our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind or might, with all our strength. And that idea of, of, of then love your neighbor as yourself. So you can see those two pictures tied into the first two parts of, of Romans 12 here uh, as we look at that. But the idea of giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, uh, holy and acceptable, Romans, you know, he says, holy and acceptable. That is only possible in Christ Jesus. There is no way we can be holy or acceptable before the throne of God without a personal relationship with Christ. Period. You can, and, and we can look around and we'll see, you know, we'll say some people, I think of, of my, my uncle, uh, Uncle John, he was a good man. He was a, a kind man, a gracious man, a generous man, uh, more than I have seen in, in, in a lot of ways anywhere else in my life. Um, he simply said he didn't have the need for church and, and, and the Bible and Christ. He, he respected it, meaning that he had no problems whatsoever that the fact that his wife was a, a firm believer, uh, that he came from a family of, uh, you know, hindsight, you know, of firm believers, that some of his kids were firm believers. But he just, he had a couple of personal experiences that told him he just didn't need that narrow religion of Christianity. And... Uh, You know, as good as he was, unless something changed, which I you never know, between the, the, the last time I saw him and, the, and, and doing his 
his service when after he passed away. Uh, he there in, in all his goodness, if you will, it's not enough to stand before God because we've all sinned and fall short. Period. Therefore, we need the holiness of Christ. It says very clearly, "Be holy as I am holy." Those are the words of God. We can't stand before Him unless we are as holy as He is. And there's no way with even one sin we are out of the picture. But through Jesus Christ, we're covered. And so, holy and acceptable, our living sacrifice, presenting ourselves while we're here on this earth as a sacrifice to God means committed to God, set apart for God. And again, only possible in Christ Jesus. And what, what are we asking? To be transformed uh, uh, by the renewing of our mind. And with this idea of, uh, is presented to be transformed versus being conformed to the world. And the interesting thing about this is that anybody can be conformed to the world. But again, only through Christ Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, can you be transformed by the renewing of your mind into, into a Christ-likeness and brought before the throne of God. This word uh, uh, transformation uh, is, is the idea of, of metamorphosis. I know uh, we've talked about this before, but just that idea of something that changes radically and, and, and completely. And there's, we have two animals that we talk about that, that frequently as an example for this. And even they are not a perfect example, but it gives us a clearer picture, if you will, of something that's transformed. And what are they? Frogs and butterflies, okay? Or possibly, according to Barry McGuire and Dottie Rambo, both frogs and butterflies, both be bored again. Um, that's as much of a song you'll get from me solo. It's as much as you want. Uh, but the idea is, is that this transformation goes on again only through Christ. And we are changed from what we were. We were being conformed to the world before the salvation of Jesus Christ entered into our lives. We were being conformed. In fact, you didn't really have an option on it. You had some part of the world you subscribed to and therefore were being conformed, made like the world. You didn't have to do any transformation. You already had the sinful nature and all the things that went with it to need that. So it was, it was automatic. It was easy. Then Christ enters in in the transformation. The idea is this, in this, this changing of the way we think is to have uh, the heart of God. To have His eyes. I, I mentioned it even in the prayer. To have His eyes. To have His, his ears to hear uh, and His words to speak that we might minister to people around us. Once in a position of transformation, and once it starts, we start to hear. We start to see people through God's eyes and hear through His ears. And you realize how important everyone is. And I mean everyone. There isn't a person on earth that you can look at and say they're, they're, they don't count. They're, everybody is important. And you start to see people with a whole different perspective. 
And at times, you see them with tears because they've made a, a statement that they, they have no need or of a relationship with, with Christ. And, uh, and other times with great joy, as you, you see them accept Christ. You also realize within the framework of the church how important everyone is. You know, the tendency is to look in the church and I think it's very typical that we put things in kind of an order as to who's the most important person in church. And unfortunately, a lot of times it starts with the pulpit saying, oh, well, the pastor, if we didn't have the pastor, we wouldn't have the reason to meet. And That's not true. You know how, that there, how many churches in the world, not in the United States maybe, but in the world meet without a designated pastor to teach? But they're still meeting. They still come together. They're still worshiping. They're still meeting each other's needs. They're still ministering one to another and waiting for the time that God provides them with one. But in the meantime, they don't stop meeting. They don't say, oh, well, we might as well close the doors because they understand something that sometimes we don't get. And that's that we're all important before the throne of God. We've been talking about this for months now in the reference of going through our spiritual gifts. Every single one of us Peter says there isn't one of us that doesn't have a spiritual gift. And normally plural. And that every spiritual gift is needed for the body to be whole, complete, and fully ministered to. So with that in mind, this idea of the, you know, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, the key thing that, that Paul was striving for and is, I think, is seen in chapter 12, verse 18. We spent quite a bit of time on this verse uh, some time ago. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paraphrase, as much as it's up to you, be at peace. What if somebody doesn't want to be at peace with you? Well, there's nothing you can do about that. You can't make people be at peace. But as much as it's up to you, be at peace. And within the framework of that, this idea of, of humility is, is emphasized in, in chapter 12 as well. Don't see other people lower than yourself or don't see yourself as more important than other people. And I think at that point you could even take from Ephesians, uh, Paul's writing there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit each of you one to another. And what that means is to honor the other people, in a sense, more than yourself. It's the idea of giving up your rights so someone else can be blessed. I stress that, you know, it goes right in from there to the marriage relationship. I always stress that in the sense of a husband-wife relationship. The thing that makes it really click and really work is when both the husband and the wife have that sacrificial desire to bless their spouse with nothing in return. Just the desire to bless and to see a smile on their face to make them happy. And when that happens, that idea of, 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 of joy, your greatest joy comes at that point, in seeing them blessed. And you'll do it at any cost. 
in order to see it happen. This is the idea of submitting one to another even in the body of Christ as a whole. Each of us, one to the other. Seeing, your, seeing a need within the body and realizing, well, I have saved up this money to do this, but I really don't need this. And this person's, gosh, their house just caught fire and they lost everything. What if I took this and did this? And you're ministering one to another. By the way, read Acts chapter 4. <laughs> what, were the, what was the body of Christ doing? They were basically putting everything together as a resource and ministering as the needs arose to everybody so that no one had need. There's seasons in the church where that's necessary. And it should always be in the back of our mind. James makes it really clear. You see somebody that needs help and you pray for them, you say, oh, be blessed and, and go in peace. <laughs> and you have the means in your pocket to minister to them and you don't? That's sin. So this idea of seeing other people. So looking at God first, seeing God and, and offering yourself as a living sacrifice. And then in a sense, offering yourself sacrificially to, to the people around you in the body of Christ and sometimes even outside the body of Christ in the sense of your neighbors and other, uh, and other people. Giving the time that's necessary that might offer them the opportunity to see Christ. Now, I know that we've gone through all of that. I don't want to spend really any more time on that. I really want to get to chapter 13 and get going with that this morning. And the focus changes here from first being right with God and then being right with the other people to how does a believer rate relate to the government? So let's read chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive His approval. For He is God's servant for you, for your good. But if you do not, <clears throat> excuse me, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For He does not bear the sword in vain, for He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience, your own conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. The whole concept of subjection is difficult for anybody. Period. Our natural, in the flesh, desire is to be basically in control of our lives. Captain of our own destiny. You know, I, I can think of all the, the, the positive thinking things, especially in the 60s and 70s that was coming out. 
and even you know spilling over into you know of course that's those are my college days 60s and 70s and and uh, seeing it in the classroom and all that idea was you know if you don't do it then it's you know no one else is going to do it for you you've got to toot your own horn I mean that was part of the the, the picture you got to you got to blow your own horn you got to you know go for it and grab all the gusto you can I probably shouldn't use that one and uh you know, all of these different types of things that were go- are going on, where it's me, 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 me. So opposite of what we've just talked about. God first, the other person second, and I'm third. By the way, that's an old saying. First time I heard it was at Y Camp when I was about 10 years old. Most of you have heard this story once or twice at least. And... Uh, I was not a, a, a Christian at the time. I had been to church more than once, but thanks to my grandmother. In fact, the only reason why I was at White Camp was thanks to my grandmother, uh, at least getting me started that way. And uh, we were meeting in the Los Angeles uh, hills, mountains, you know, Angeles Forest. Uh, and just like around here, because they're coastal you know, hills, you get the fog that comes in in the morning. Well, every morning we had a chapel service, and it was an open... Uh, on a hillside, seating on, a, uh, on one side of the hill. And, and on the other side of the hill, uh, the little canyon, was a, a big cross. And normally you could see it, but this morning, this particular morning, you couldn't see it. And this guy came in, and he was talking, and his whole thing was about how if you put God first and you put other people ahead of yourself and you take the I'm third position, you'll actually be a happy person. You'll actually be blessed. You'll actually have this sense of peace with God and with man. And that idea, as much as it's up to you to be at peace, becomes an easier thing to do because you've got a mindset to be in that, that way of thinking. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know why it caught my ear and caught my attention, but it really stuck. And just as he got down to the altar call part of it, which I didn't go forward or any of that kind of stuff, but... You know, I thought, you know, how, how real could God be? The sun breaks, and literally, the only place that sunshine was was on the cross on the other side of the canyon. Everywhere else was still foggy. That has never left me. I was so impressed with that whole little service that my craft that day was a piece of wood with I'm third carved in it with a little lanyard that you made out of plastic weaving stuff, and, and you hung on the wall. And I think Jeanette said she might have that. I can't remember. You know, she, she, I think she said she found it the other day. My mom must have saved it. Um, so you have this, this idea of I'm third. God first, the other man second, I'm third. But man, nobody really wants to be there. And of course, with our culture, we're fiercely independent. Our culture even breeds that. Our education breeds that. And I'm not against being patriotically independent, but a lot of times it goes against the grain of submitting to God and submitting one to another. Peter talks about this in chapter 2 of, of, of 1 Peter. Titus in chapter 3. And, and this idea of submitting to the authorities. Submitting to government. In fact, we're also told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray 
for our government, for the leaders and authorities over us. So the problem, we simply don't want to. Now, I want to draw this one note to you. Subjection and obedience, they're not actually equal. In other words, subjection doesn't equal obedience. So if you can be see you can be obedient to something and not be in subjection. What's the old story? You know, the little kid is is told to to uh, uh, sit, sit down and be quiet, and so he's sitting down and mumbling under his breath. I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, you know. And uh, and and that idea that you know he's 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 obedient but not in submission. However, if you are in submission, obedience will be a part of that. Okay, so, so don't, don't excuse it either. But, but this idea of subjection is more of an attitude of heart and, and towards, towards God and, and towards anyone that's over you. A willingness to say, that person's in charge. That person has authority. Obedience, outward performance, subjection or being in submission is an attitude of the heart and it's an inward again, can only be truly expressed in a transformation and a renewing of your mind through Jesus Christ in you. Now, within the framework of that, we're to be submissive to our government. Our government has some responsibilities too. For instance, in chapter uh, 13, verses 3 and 4, it says, the responsibilities of the government are to be a terror to bad conduct. Now, that word terror is, is, means fear in the, in the actual context. Phobo. Phobia. You know, government's supposed to, you know, if you're a bad person, you look at those in authority and you're supposed to have a fear of not wanting to displease. Because the consequences are, are in place and they will be taken care of. It will happen. It says very clearly that the government is God's servant for our good. If it's for our good, then it's also tied to God's will. So, verse 5 says, be in subjection to avoid punishment. That idea is the obedience for the sake of conscience, which would be more of that idea of heart. What is right and what is moral. I say all of that just to say, here's the general picture then. I am to recognize, by the way, these authorities are anyone that's placed over you in the sense of, 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 of the, state, the state, if you will, or the government. Who would be over us in Fortuna? Hmm? The city council? Okay. Planning commission? I heard somebody say that the other day as we were talking about it. Very reluctantly and very unhappily because it wasn't going their way. But yeah, the planning commission has a lot of say. And you, can, you may choose to, to go outside of it, but it's, <laughs> the consequences can be pretty significant. Uh, in fact, I've seen some things happen that way, and it, it, they weren't pleasant for the people. So, planning commission, police department, for that matter, the fire department. Any time a fireman is there in an official capacity, he is in charge. See, there's an, right here in Fortuna, you've got people over you in the sense of government. And they have a tremendous influence as they enact ordinances and changes. I personally 
do not care for the way our water bill works in Fortuna. I do not believe that it is fair that I should have to pay a sewer fee for every gallon of water I use, even if it doesn't go into the sewer. Because somebody, 22 years ago, or whatever, failed to take money that had been set aside and start the restructuring of the sewer system that was supposed to start then. Why should I have... Does it matter? When my water bill comes, I either pay it or get shut off. There's the consequences. Now the problem is, can I do it with a subjection in the sense of the right kind of heart? Obviously, I'm struggling with it. It's not, it's, so it's a struggle sometimes. But I still find it a compelling argument on their part. They're in control of the water. I have people over me. In the state of California, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. It doesn't matter. Who, whoever's the leader in the state. You know, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the, 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 the governor, there, you know, a lot of people were unhappy. When Pat Brown was the governor, a lot of people were unhappy. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether Republican or Democrat. If that person's the governor, they're in charge. President of the United States. Boy, that can be a sore subject depending on who you're talking to and what time of season it's talking to and whether it's a Republican or a Democrat in the office as to who you're talking to. But the bottom line is, he's still, at this point, it's always been he's, uh, he is the President of the United States, whoever it is, and he is in authority. We are to be in subjection too. Not only to avoid punishment, but for the sake of conscience. A clear conscience. Now, we understand the, the idea of the... Of, by the way, military. Now, I did not end up having to serve in the military because at the very point that I go down to the uh, in, uh, enlistment office, which I was obligated to do because I was already signed up for the Navy, they said, sorry, we can't take you right now. They were overstocked with, with uh, non-commissioned officers and ensigns and, and low-ranking officers, and they said, we don't have room for you right now unless you want to come in as a seaman. And I didn't go to college for five years to do that. So I, I said, no, thank you. And I didn't end up going into the service. But if I had, I, I'd learned something from my, my dad that was really interesting. My, my dad was a, a uh, drill sergeant. That was his final tour of duty. He was a drill, ser drill sergeant in Camp Pendleton. That tells you what he was, a Marine. And... Uh, you know, he was a master sergeant, and there were those who had to salute him. But it, he was telling me, because I was going into the Navy, much to his disdain, and I was going into to be in, a, in an officer capacity, but I still had to go through boot camp just like everybody else. And he says, you know what? He says, you're, you're, you're a DI, your drill instructor. Guess what? He's going to be a Marine sergeant. <laughs> And he was trying to give me that dig as it was, you know. And, and he says, and he's going to make it really, really miserable for you because when it's all said and done and you graduate, he has to salute you. 
Why? Not because I deserve it or earned it. I'm just simply now a ranking officer. And I guess I understand if that's the case. Isn't that what you have to do, Phil, is you have to salute those that are over you? But respect for the office, that's fine. But you're still saluting. Okay, are you doing it with submission? Yeah. See, it's a struggle, isn't it, sometimes? Okay, but you see what I mean. It's, it's, it's all around us. It's all around us. And on top of that, when you look at, 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 at the, the next couple of verses, you know, number six and seven, it says, for because of this, in other words, because of this system that's set out of authorities, you also pay taxes. Not only do you need to submit to these authorities and in, a, in a sense of more than just obedience, but with a willingness, you have to support them. Help pay their salaries. And it's done through taxes. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to re- revenue is owed. Respect to to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So, this picture of submitting to authorities comes to me automatically. What if the authorities aren't honoring God? What if they actually, at times, are you can clearly see they're going against God's Word. They don't honor what God honors. They don't honor what, what, and for that matter, they don't honor, in a sense, what God condemns, in a sense of, this is bad. What are we supposed to do? We have to submit then as believers? that point you start to talk about this, you realize there's a lot of opinions about this. I was blown away. Because, quite candidly, I'm fairly staunch in my opinion about this. And I was surprised at, at how many variables that had been introduced in this in some way of to say, well, Paul here never talks about that exactly. And therefore, we don't know, so what isn't said gives it up to us as a matter of conscience to decide. Yeah, Paul did address this exactly, because you have to think of the government at the time that Paul was writing this. For that matter, what did Jesus say about when the Pharisees were trying to, you know, the Pharisees and and the Sadducees and the scribes all got together and said, we've got to trip him up. So the Pharisees start off with the first question, and they, you know, and their question was, do we have to pay taxes? The zealots, especially among the Pharisees, said, no way. Whatever we can do to get out of our tax burden, we should do. And if we don't pay it at all, we should try to do that. I mean, it, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. I mean, and their argument was, look at the coin we have to pay our taxes with. It has the emblem of Caesar. He's an idol. We, can't, we shouldn't have to touch those coins. So they go and think, there's no way Jesus can answer this and, and, and please everybody. And Jesus simply took the coin, 
the denarius and held it up. And he says, whose emblem is this? You know, whose figure on this? Caesar's. Okay? And he and basically says, what's owed to Caesar, you've got to pay it. What's owed to God, you've got to pay that. And what he was talking about was their, their system there of, of, of tithing and temple taxes and stuff like that were all included in addition to offering yourself to God and, and to be, you know, uh, a believer and all. But, but the idea was more than anything else was, was yeah, you've got to pay taxes. He told one soldier, be a good soldier. And when he talked to the centurion and he heals his servant, he never once said, oh, and by the way, it'd be a good thing for you to leave the Roman army now because it's wicked. The government was a government that was completely alien. It had no desire whatsoever to honor God. In fact, the government within the Hebrew culture wasn't honoring God. But Jesus said, submit. So we do have a situation here. We can't, even if we don't agree with it, we're compelled to, to submit. So the, the question has to come up then, is there any time that we don't have to submit? Now, I want to caution you. If you're starting off with that question in the very first place, you're probably still having some issues with submission because you're looking for the loophole. Okay? Did I write that down? Bob's still looking for loop. Yeah, I did. Um, and so that, that, that idea of, of, of battling this idea of submission is always in there. But the reality is there are some times where when those who are in authority over you tell you to do something, you can stand and basically say, I can't. Not just a flat-out no, but it's an I can't. And once you say I can't, it's not I may not, I can't. I can't means I can't, in clear conscience, do this. There's no way I can do this. So go ahead and punish me. <laughs> Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles in Acts chapter 5, arrested for preaching the gospel. In both cases, they had to stand before the Sanhedrin and just say, you know, you let us go. We're going back out there and preach. Because we have to do that. It's an absolute directive, imperative command from our Lord. We must preach the gospel at any cost. And Jesus even told us, because we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to be martyred, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be thrown into jails, we're going to be beaten. All these different things are going to happen to us because of that, but we have no choice. We must serve God first. So we have a clear picture here that's given to us. When something interferes with our faith in the sense of causing us to have to do something that is against our faith, then we stand with our faith. Now, it's interesting, though, not once, and Paul stood on this position of faith over and over and over again. In jail, out of jail. You know, held, taken out of town, beaten. You know, all the things that happened to him because of preaching the gospel and standing on this principle. Not once did Paul say, 
get me out of prison. He didn't once say, go picketing to get me out of prison. Not once did he say, I have the right. Uh, you're going you're gonna to throw Acts 16 at me in a second if you know it. So just hang on here. But not, not once did he say, basically, my rights have been violated in the sense of me standing before Caesar, you know, having to go to stand before Caesar. I shouldn't have to be doing that. He was innocent of anything before the throne of God. Wrong. But Caesar's law said, no, you're guilty. To the point where I can, I can execute you. And did. There's a point, then, where we have to stand on our faith rather than on what the authority of the land is saying. But you need to be sure what you're doing and where you stand and when you do it. It's not an arbitrary thing of just saying, well, I don't like that law, therefore I'm going to look for a reason to stand against it. It'll be, I believe, obvious to you. And when you are called to stand, you may be called to pay consequences as well. You know, the, Paul's attitude was basically, well, I had a ministry to, to, to Philippians here outside in the street, but now I have a jail ministry in the Philippian jail. He didn't argue with the idea that, you know, he just transferred his ministry. In Rome, of all the places in the world, you think of a Praetorian guard, that's Caesar's elite guard of the palace. These guys are the, 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 some of them are appointed through, you know, appointee positions and stuff like that, but most of those are the, the centurions and up. The actual guards are nice that have come up through the ranks and earned their position. And they're noted warriors and soldiers and toughies, you know, that type of thing. And, and they're there to give their life, like the Secret Service would do for the president. They're there to, to intervene on, on the behalf of, of Caesar and protect him. When you're, a guard, when you're a political prisoner in the palace, they happen to be your guards. What did Paul say about the Praetorian Guard? How many of them ended up hearing the gospel? All of them. And some of them actually got saved. Would they, would they have given Paul the time of day to preach the gospel? No. Paul saw it as an opportunity. God changed the, 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 the plan. And he said, okay, we're going this way now. And I now have a jail ministry. And he got to, to minister to the Praetorian Guard. I've met people, especially in the sense of illness, where they've ended up lots of time in the hospital, lots of times in recovery homes and stuff like that, where they turned around and said, you know, this doctor, he was, he was Jewish. <laughs> Past tense. Yeah. Uh, but I never would have, if I'd been knocking door to door, they'd have said, no, thank you. And if they were that polite about it. And, and, and I never would have gotten the opportunity but I had him as a captive audience every time we met. John Pletz, my Jewish doctor in, in, in San Francisco. He got to the point where he actually, they double scheduled my, my visiting time because he also wanted to talk. And he started, when the Franklin Electronic Bible came out, that shows you how old this goes back. He cut the article out and says, what do you think about this? Because he was thinking maybe it was sacrilegious. Because it wasn't a real Bible. 
and you could read the Bible on an electronic de you know, device, digitally. I said, man, that's awesome. I wish I had more. <laughs> you know, and he's, you know, uh, so you never know how God is going to use what might be the worst of circumstances. So if you're in submission to God, those things open up. Your submission to, the, the, to other people and you're conscious of their needs around you. And then you're submissive to the law of the land even when it goes against you. And you may have to stand up and say, I can't do that. Then you end up going to prison. Conscientious objectors. I, I know that word phrase in and of itself rings you know, a terrible distaste in some people's mouth. But I, I always think of Sergeant York. Did he have the right to be a conscientious objector? According to the law of the land, he did. Actually. But he still had to serve. Now, in the midst of that, he changed his mind about some aspects of that. It's not quite the way the movie goes, but he changed his mind about some aspects of that. But a matter of conscience. He could not clearly... It was to, to take aim through the peep sight of a, a 30 6 military rifle at, at, at an enemy across the line and pull the trigger and kill him was something he simply couldn't do. Turns out... According to studies, probably 30% at least of, of armed soldiers in the, from the Western context, uh, uh, the, the Allies, shot blindly because they really couldn't take aim on an individual. It's interesting. But I'm, all I'm saying is that the, at times there's this point where you have to know what you believe, why you believe it, and stand on it, and you face the consequences. And it's not, these have nothing to do with convenience. I know guys that pleaded conscientious objector for Vietnam. Several of them. Most of them didn't get out with it. But, but uh, you know, the idea was they just didn't want to go into the military. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is where you have a moral commitment that you believe this is where you stand in the relationship with God. Some of these things are absolutes. I believe, for instance, that a government who demands abortion, demands abortion, is totally in error. And at that point, I have to oppose it with everything that I've got. And there are countries where it is demanded. It's not chosen by the people. It's demanded by the government. It's wrong. So we can get into this. Is there a time where it happens? Yes. But in the meantime, we are called to acknowledge that these people have been put in authority over us. And the hard part about this for me is where it says, and God did it. God allowed these people to be in authority. It's with his permission. None of them have a position of king or position of president or position of mayor without the permission of God. And I look at some of these people and I have to tell you, I struggle. Because I just don't see how God could choose those people and allow it. 
And, and, and uh, you can go all through history and see this over and over and over again. Some extreme reasons of, of I just don't get it. But I, this is where faith comes into the picture of trusting that God in his sovereignty has the whole symphony written out and complete. And as each part plays its part, it's going to complete the final, the final hallelujah, if you will, at a point in time where it all comes together and we will, as believers, stand in heaven and say, oh, wow. And just be in awe of God's sovereign plan for man and humanity. Well, coming back to this picture. We are to be in submission to God, offering ourselves as living sacrifice, wanting to be transformed. As that happens, we begin to develop an attitude towards each other that shows a, a sense of, of submission one to another, giving to each other sacrificially in our relationships, and ultimately should also be leading us even to a point of understanding God in His sovereignty has allowed the people who are in charge to be there. And where respect is necessary, and again, I, you know, the idea of walking into a courtroom, and the bailiff says, all rise. You know this judge personally. You do not care for him. You do not like his decisions. You don't like how many people he's let off or how many he's put into jail, depending on what your opinion is. And you, you sit there and you don't want to, but what are you to do? You could be held in contempt of court if you don't rise. Why? Because he's in the position of authority. And once more, God allowed it. And I will rise. I don't have to like the President of the United States, but he walks into the room. He's the Commander-in-Chief of the nation. He's the highest-ranking officer, if you will. And if I'm in the military, I have to rise and salute. But the least I have to do is to stand. Because he's in authority over me. The insubjection, which brings about an obedience, unless God's word absolutely stands in, in, in opposition. Now, I'm going to take you to the ultimate subjection, Jesus Christ. He's talking with Pilate. Pilate says, do you not know that I, you're, you're, I'm going to paraphrase here, Okay. Give me the freedom here. Do you not know, sir, that your hand, your life, your very existence is in my palm right now? It's in my court, my arena. And all I have to do is say yay or nay, thumbs up, thumbs down, and that's it. And Jesus turns and says, you have no power at all except what God's given, my Father's given you. Was that a true statement? Absolutely. In fact, we're told Jesus at any point in the process could have called down what? To rectify the situation on his behalf. Legions. How many? I think it says six legions. Something like that. I can't remember. A dozen legions. I can't, there's a number tied to it because I remember that because we're not quite sure in how to interpret that, it's a whole bunch. If two did to Sodom and Gomorrah, what would a legion, a legion, do? Not plural, just a legion do to, to the situation in Pilate's 
courtroom. You see, or at the cross or at any other point. Jesus was submitting to whom? The Father. And he was doing it willingly. He was submitting even to Pilate's authority. Willingly. He wouldn't back away from the position to put him there. He couldn't. The ultimate subjection is Jesus Christ submitting to God and actually submitting even to man. For the sake of man. So that we could be here this morning to talk about this. talk about offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, to talk about being transformed in our mind and our heart, our being, to talk about how we can encourage each other to, to serve and to work and, and to grow in God and how to witness to the world and to encourage each other to do that. Every time we come to communion, we're embracing the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I don't think there should be a time that we come to the table that we don't say, Lord, receive me as a living sacrifice. Change my heart that I can be the sacrifice you want me to be. Change my mind and the way I think so that even when I you know, think about the planning commission or even when I think about the water bill, I can do so with a conscience that says, I know that my sovereign God is in charge and I can rest in complete peace with that in spite of what I see, in spite of what I hear, in spite of what I read, my sovereign God is in charge and I will rest in Him and be at peace. And create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Search my heart, O oh God. All of this comes at a point where we come to the table. As Jesus submitted, we, this is a good time for us to submit. And I just offer you that opportunity this morning as we share in communion. I'll ask the ushers to come and to pass the emblems out, hold them till we've all been served, and then we'll share together.
This morning, and go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and say, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is an amazing thing. We sing the song Amazing Grace, we talk about it, but it is absolutely amazing that in spite of me, I am holy before the throne of God because. Not in anything I bring. I've often said it. I say it again. If any part of my salvation is in my hands, I am doomed. But it's all in Christ. When he said it is finished, it was complete. And the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples, the the night that he was betrayed and he was arrested, he, he shared so many things. You go through... You know, you look at the Gospels and, and the majority of it is the last week of his life. And in John, it's, it's, the majority of it is the last day, the last night and the day of his crucifixion. And, and we look at this and we realize that, you know, you'd think every, about everything that Jesus said on the night of, of his betrayal at that Last Supper. Things about abiding in him and, 
and, and uh, seeking Him and, and, and keeping His commandments and loving one another. So many things. over. But the one thing that He said is, one thing that He did say was very clearly, and there's a particular thing, as often as you do this, I want you to remember Me. And He took two symbols from the dinner, from the meal. One was the bread, and He took it after giving thanks and breaking it and giving it to His disciples. He said, this is My body broken for you. As often as you eat this, as often as we eat it, even today, we are asked to do it by Him in remembrance of Him as a shared together. As we share the, the broken bread together, we realize Jesus Christ, God of all creation, literally came in the flesh. And we've shared in that bread that represents that. But it wasn't enough that He come. He needed to be the perfect sacrifice. At no point did anybody take from Him what He did not freely give. He was in charge. He laid down His life. He allows His blood to be poured out. And the life is in the blood. He gave His life for us. And He held up the cup on the night He was betrayed at that Last Supper and said, This is My blood poured out for you. As often as you drink this, and until I come again, do it in remembrance of Me, was His request. Father, we realize that as we come before You, there is so much that we, that we look at and we realize how massively we fall short in the sense of, of resting in Your grace with that absolute assurance without a grumbling spirit, but resting with that confidence that the God of all creation not only is my Savior, but He has it absolutely planned out he is never late about anything, always perfectly on time, and it all works together for the good of the believer. We are told that, we say it, we mentally ascend to that, cause us to, to have our minds transformed to a point where we can rest in that constantly. And in the process, even more, have your ears, have your eyes, because I know that those are the things that when we don't rest in it that keep us from hearing You, keep us from seeing You, that we could, could be closer to You and as a result, ministering one to another, encouraging one another to rise up in our strength and our, our walk with You and to draw close to You and to impact the communities that we're in for Your sake. At least our families, the neighbors, the people You put us around. We love You. We worship You. We praise You for the grace you've poured out on us in Jesus' name.